Welcome to Aggravating Circumstances, a true crime podcast. I am your host, Laura Saremi. This is Season 1, Episode 4, The Trial. This is an ongoing story, so if you're just getting started, you may want to hit pause and go back and start with Episode 1. Don't worry, we will wait for you. Last, never first, no worse since birth. Got my hopes set on heaven because it's hell here on earth. My life was a mess. Calls will be recorded and may be monitored. You may start the conversation now. Hey, hey. I was telling yesterday, I, I said when uh, it comes to wrongful convictions, I was like, uh, uh, Laura's pretty passionate. I said, and, uh, <laughs> she, she, ain't, she ain't scared. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get to the trial, I want to start today's episode with the problem with crime labs being associated with police departments. I'm going to put a small interruption here. I had an audio glitch in this episode, and the sound quality is a little bit different after this, which I apologize for. I promise it does not happen again So I hope you hang in there with us through the rest of this story because it is really intriguing. So to get us started on this topic, we're going to talk about a guy named Fred Zane. Fred Zane was a trooper with the West Virginia State Police, and he was hired as a chemist to run their laboratory. This was the crime lab that the police used. It turns out that he wasn't actually a chemist. He had said that he had a minor in chemistry with his degree, which turned out not to be true. He'd also failed several forensic science classes that he had taken through the FBI, but no one bothered to check this guy's credentials, and they put him in charge of their crime lab. While he worked there, some whistleblowers had actually accused him of recording results from blank test plates and various things like that, but no one paid any attention. He became known very quickly as being able to solve very tough cases, and prosecutors from the around the country started seeking him out as an expert witness and to help them with their tough cases. This all came to a sliding stop because in 1987, a man named Glenn Woodall was convicted of a uh, sexual assault and some pretty grisly felonies. And Zane's testimony was used to connect him to the sexual assaults through his semen. However, they did DNA testing in 1988 and completely excluded him as the rapist. He could not have done it. His conviction was overturned five years later, and he won decent settlement for false imprisonment. And they showed that Zane's testimony was completely false. Because of this case, the county prosecutor, a guy named Forbes, began a criminal investigation into Fred Zane. And he was so disturbed by what he found, he asked the Supreme Court, of appeals of West Virginia to appoint a special panel and look into this. So there was a report that came out in 1983, um, Judge James Holliday's report, 
I'm going to quote from Wikipedia for this. It said, issued a report finding that Zane had engaged in a staggering litany of misconduct and outright fraud. According to the report, Zane had misstated evidence, falsified lab results, and reported scientifically implausible results that may have resulted in as many as 134 people being wrongfully convicted. That's just in West Virginia, guys. Holiday found that Zane's misconduct was so egregious that any testimony offered by Zane should be presumed as prima facie, quote, invalid, unreliable, and inadmissible, end quote. It also found serious deficiencies in the serology divisions, that's what they call the lab, quality control procedures. The Supreme Court unanimously accepted Holiday's report on November 12th, calling Zane's actions egregious violations of the right of a defendant to a fair trial and a corruption of our legal system. So after Fred Zane worked in West Virginia, he went on to work in Texas where his misconduct and fraud continued and they found as many as 180 wrongful convictions because of this guy. Many, many, many cases were overturned and millions of dollars were paid out in lawsuits because of this individual. Unfortunately, he's not the only one. This is actually maybe to a lesser extent, but it's fairly common because of the association of crime labs and police departments for the scientists to not necessarily be all that scientific. There's a blog, if you like legal topics like I do, called Crime Scene to Courtroom. It has really great legal topics. And there's one that I'd like to read a paragraph from. It was called Challenges of Having Crime Labs Affiliated with the Police. It was written by Sarthak Gupta. And he's actually talking about a book called Tainting Evidence, written by John Kelly. So here's the quote from the blog. In his book called Tainting Evidence, John Kelly reveals about the compromised forensic work in cases like the Oklahoma City bombing, the World Trade Center explosions, etc. The book also talks about inaccurate testimony, testimony beyond the competence of examiners, improperly prepared laboratory reports, inadequate record management and retention, and failure to resolve serious and credible allegations of incompetence. The said bias has not only trapped the police in its garb, but has influenced the evidence experts too. Prosecutors have found have been found to influence and force the experts to give a testimony in their favor. In the case of Troy Dell versus Wainwright, it was found that the FBI firearm expert, John Riley, admitted in his deposition that the opinion stated earlier, incriminating David Troy Dell, was devoid of scientific certainty, and he was coerced to be in the favor of the prosecution. This is not a one-off incident. Between 1989 and 1999, at the U.S. Department of Justice and Homeland Security, malpractices conducted by the investigating and forensic personnel led to 329 wrongful convictions. Having a defined system of accountability and delegation of responsibility could have avoided these catastrophic results. So... One of the things that criminal justice reform advocates say, which they call a low-hanging fruit because it would be fairly easy to do, is we really need to separate crime labs from police departments. By having the crime labs underneath the same government agency as the district attorney's offices and the police, it puts them all in, so they're motivated to win cases. 
would be the, the nice way to put it. And it's not unusual for them to not test evidence that might hurt the prosecution's case or to more strongly state results that are helpful and to minimize results that aren't. Um, or, as in the case of Fred Zane, to commit outright fraud to help the prosecutions. So we're going to get back to Destry McKinney and the evidence in his case. So let's pick up where we left off. So Destry McKinney was hit by a car that Stevlin Seals was driving. This was not the first time she tried to run him over in this same incident. It was the third or fourth time. And at that point, he felt like he couldn't get away. This was, there was no time to react. She was running him over and he shot once into the car. He hit her. He drove her to the hospital as fast as he could. And on the way, he hit his fuel tank in his car on a railroad track and it ruptured the fuel tank. I believe if he had not ruptured the fuel tank in his car, that this entire story and this podcast might have been come out completely differently. When he got to the hospital, he was pouring fuel all over the entrance to the emergency room. The witnesses testified that it was quote unquote, not just dripping, it was pouring. He was told to move his car immediately. He decided to take the car to a gas station. He didn't quite make it to the gas station. He was pulled over and arrested meters from the gas station. And several things happened. So he's left her at the emergency room. And so the so he's left. He's left. I have to wonder if he had still been at the emergency room when the police came to investigate a shooting, how this might have turned out differently. But he wasn't there. When they pulled him over, they patted him down and they found, they thought that he had something, quote, illegal in his pocket. The police officer said in pretrial hearing that he believed it was crack cocaine, which was why he used the fact that he thought it was illegal as an excuse to uh, check his pockets. And when he checked his pocket, he found a bullet in the pocket. This turned out to be a fragment of the bullet that had actually hit Stevelin seals. So now... Destry McKinney has a piece of the bullet in his pocket. He stated later in court that he saw it stuck to her shirt when he was moving her into the wheelchair at the hospital, and he put it in his pocket. Now, the car where she had hit him and he had shot her sat unattended in a driveway with the doors open for several hours. I believe it was roughly three-ish, three maybe three or more, three or more hours, and a neighbor had seen the car and two young men had actually gone and investigated the car and looked in the car and been around the car when they called the police and the police came out to secure the crime scene. The shooting happened around 1.30-ish or before that, slightly before that, and the car was not secured till like 4.23, I believe is what the record states. So one of the things that happened is he said that he dropped the pistol at the scene when all this happened, he'd been hit by the car, he dropped the gun, he takes her to the hospital. So as far as he knows, the gun was left at the scene. When the police arrived, there's no gun. So things that don't look so good for Destry McKinney, he's covered with blood, he has a bullet in his pocket, he's left his friend at the hospital, the gun is missing. And so now they go in and they search his studio and they find more guns and drugs. So I'm sure at this point, the police are convinced they've got a bad guy 
We have drugs in the house. Not so much they think he's a drug dealer, but they did find controlled substances. Among them were marijuana and cocaine. And now they've got him arrested. I do have questions about his arrest. They charged him at the time, and what the arrest report says is that he was hindering prosecution. Now, the Alabama Criminal Code says hindering prosecution is when a person commits the crime of hindering prosecution with the intent to hinder the apprehension, prosecution, conviction, or punishment of another for conduct constituting a murder or felony. He renders criminal assistance to such a person. So I don't know who he was rendering criminal assistance to other than himself. I don't know if they just used hindering prosecution as kind of a catch-all and anybody that they were arresting and weren't quite sure why they called it hindering prosecution. Hindering prosecution is different from resisting arrest. So I don't understand the charges. I do know that he was arrested the day this happened, which was February 6th of 2000, and the indictment for murder was not handed down until November 28th of 2001. So what happened for 22 months and 21 days while he sat in jail is an unknown to me. So let's start talking about the evidence. Now, the day it happened, he called Stevlin's mother and told her that she had been shot by the person that she was trying to run over. So he had said immediately this was self-defense. And they had asked for discovery of the forensics done on the car starting. The first request for discovery was March 27th of 2000. So this is a month later. And his team wanted the blood on the front bumper tested where she had hit him with the car where his pants were bloody, as well as testing on the scratches on the hood from where he had tossed the bed frame onto the car. And they started asking for the car to be tested the month after this happened. They sent requests, motions, and letters to the district attorney's office in 2000, 2001, 2002, and 2003. Each time, as they sent another letter, they said, we still haven't gotten a response from the previous motion. And... In Alabama, the law says when you ask for discovery, it is supposed to be provided within 14 days. Apparently, there are no consequences for just ignoring this requirement. There's a corresponding blog that goes along with my podcast. In this blog, in Chapter 5, I have an entire transcript from a docket call that was February 3rd of 2000 where they discuss the car. And I will, I will not torture you with it because it's quite long, but the purpose of the docket call was to set the trial date. The trial date was supposed to happen within a week or two or something like that. And the judge said, is there any reason why we can't go ahead and move to trial? And Destry McKinney's attorney said, we still haven't seen the car. We still haven't gotten the forensic testing that we've been asking for for the past three years. And we still need to schedule a time to see the car. And the district attorney had the nerve to say, what? This is the first I've even heard of this. I had no idea you wanted to see the car, which I'm sorry, it's 
offensive because there are letters specifically saying we need to schedule a time to see the car. We need to have the car tested. We need the forensic results from the testing of the car. So the fact that he claims that this was the first he heard of it is a problem. So while he's there in court, they said, well, the judge says, well, where's the car? And the DA says, I have no idea. I don't know where the car is. And so he said, it's probably in the impound. Well, then one of his assistants says, actually, we don't have the car. So then he says, oh, actually, we don't have the car. It turns out it was released to a lien company. And the date that it was released, April of 2000. Now, this is a docket call in February of 2003. This is three years after the incident. And this is three years, two years and 11 months after they started asking to see the car and asking to have it tested. So for the record, they have not had the car for 1,304 days. And they're just now getting around to A, figuring this out and B, letting the defense team know So the judge says, well, go find the car. Why are you wasting time? And tells the defense attorneys they need to go find the car so they can do their testing on it. What kind of forensic testing do you think is going to be good three years, six months, and 27 days later while the car has been cleaned, repaired, repainted, and driven by somebody else? I don't think it's going to be very good. As a matter of fact, it goes to court And they do find the car. They have to hire a private investigator. This delays the trial. They find the car and they did some testing on it. And one of the things that they showed in the pictures from the crime scene is there were these white scratches all over the hood of the car. Now, the bed railing that Destry threw at the car as she was trying to run him over the first time was white. So we've got a white bed railing. She's thrown, he's thrown the bed rail at the car and now there's white scratches on the car. You can see them in the photos. At trial, the forensic analyst who tested the car three years later said there were no white scratches on the hood. Imagine that. So the prosecutor then said, wouldn't you have expected something heavy like a bed railing to have left transfer paint onto the car? And he said, of course, it would have left transfer paint onto the car. So then the defense team gets up in cross-examination and says, well, do you see this photograph? And what do you see on the photograph? And he said, there are white scratches on the car. And he said, do you see, did you see white scratches when you looked at it? He said, no, there weren't any. And they said, did you know that it had been three years since the incident before you examined the car. And he said, no, no one told me that. And then the prosecutor got up and tried to get him to say, but the car had not been repainted. And the forensic expert said, no, it had been repainted. So they testified in court that the car had been repainted after the incident. So they're trying to say that there was no evidence that he threw the bed railing at the car because there was no white paint, but there's photographs that show white scratches and the forensic analyst who tested the car, hello, three years later, said it had been repainted. I'm sorry, none of that proves anything. The other thing that's a huge problem is on the front bumper of the car and there are photographs, there's a bloody smear. McKinney said that she hit him with the car and he fell and got hurt and bled into his 
corduroy pants that he was wearing. When she hit him the last time, the time when he couldn't get away and he actually flipped over the hood and shot her through the windshield, he left a bloody smear on the front bumper of the car. They had been asking to have that bloody smear tested as soon as March after this happened in 2000. The car was not released until April, but it was not tested. They did not test the bloody smear on the car. So the only thing left to test would be the pants he was wearing. Those they have. Thank goodness we have the pants he was wearing at the time. Some way to corroborate his story that she actually hit him with the car. He gives his pants to the police. He signs them over. And there are several motions where his defense team asks that the pants and all cuttings from the pants be tested and they go to the forensic lab. The forensics lab said that when the pants arrived, there was a large defect in the pants. By a large defect, this was a portion of bloody pants that had been cut out. At trial, they said that all the cuttings had been tested and that his blood, Destry McKinney's blood, was not found on the pants. The prosecutor stood up in trial and called him a liar and said that he wouldn't know the truth, quote, if it slapped him in the face. And by claiming that he bled onto the bumper and into his pants, that this completely undermined his self-defense case and he should go to prison for the rest of his life. The jury apparently believed this and he was convicted. Almost immediately after his conviction, his family went to the police station to get his personal belongings. When you are arrested, they take things from you, such as your wallet, keys, things like that. They don't let you go into a jail with things in your pockets. They had a personal property envelope that was dated that day he was arrested. And when the police sergeant opened the envelope for the family to give them his belongings, in this envelope was the section of pants that had been cut out that was covered with his blood. The cutting that was supposed to go to the lab to be tested, the cutting that they were supposed to compare to his blood samples and DNA to see if his story was true. In a remarkable moment, his family demanded it be sealed in an in a evidence envelope so that they could have the chain of custody. They turned it over to his attorneys who had it tested and it came back covered in Destry McKinney's blood. Why was the car not tested? Why was the bloody smear on the front bumper not tested? Why was the car released before the testing could be done? And why was the evidence that backed up his story hidden away for years? I hope you've enjoyed episode four of Aggravating Circumstances. This is an ongoing story. If you have any information or things you would like to share, please feel free to reach out by emailing me at circpod at gmail.com. That's C-I-R-C-P-O-D at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, circpod.com or aggravatingcircumstances.com. That is where the blog is posted. And as always, everyone fasten your seatbelts. Don't forget the kids are in the back seat. Stay safe. And we'll be finishing up with more of Destry McKinney's music.
is. Show me how to turn these boys into men. Add to your kingdom, no more sin. You gave us the victory, now we got to win. Here I am, Lord, who with me now? Here I am, Lord. We started with lordship, sonship, and worship. The sin we were born in the life that he purchased. I was still lost, y'all. The first time I heard this, convinced that the gospel was useless and worthless. Lord of lies, deceived and despised. These unhealed eyes can't perceive the disguise. So it took a real loss to cost the real lies. The enemy is real and cost in real lies. Our sons, daughters, pops, and my dear. The devil don't care, and yeah, it's quite clear. But God. God never gave me the spirit of fear, so he that has an ear, let him hear. Unite, mobilize, shout, vocalize, ask him to heal me, and God bless with open eyes. Pray, verbalize, praise, move the skies. Jesus ascends, and now we born to rise. Here I am, Lord, and it begins. Show me how to turn these boys into men. Add to your kingdom, no more sin. You gave us the victory, now we got to win. Here I am, Lord, who with me now? Here I am, Lord, who with me now? It's a tragedy to be lost and not know it. I offered my hand, he gave his life for it. Shielded by faith, the voice is my sword. I'm saved by grace, Jesus is my Lord. I call from the top to stop the backslide. Even on the block, he gon' be glorified. It's his ability, working inside. Bring your humility and accept pride. Hear the mighty roar, the light on the sun. We call the war with victories won. He is the door and second to none. And we know the roar, the second he comes. Heir of the promise, the son is so blessed. In Christ we are whole, shalom and no less. God ain't never surprised by your flesh. So put it under great surprise, you sinless. Here I am, Lord. And it begins, show me how to turn these boys into men. Add to your kingdom, no more sin. He gave us a victory, now we got to win. Here I am, Lord, who with me now? Here I am, Lord, who with me now? No more me, no more self. No more loss with my heart on wealth. I thought as a child, I understood as a child. But now as a man, I lay that kitty stuff down. No more lies, no more take. No more envy and no more hate. He looking for ground to plant good seed. You want true growth, then it's Christ you need. No more pride and no more offense. No more dollars that don't make sense. No more cheat and no more rob. No work, no weed. Better find you a job The sick get healed The captive go free What's up with the cross? He did that for me The sick get healed The captive go free What's up with the cross? He did that for me Show me how to turn these boys into men. Add to your kingdom, no more sin. You gave us a victory, now we got to win. Here I am, Lord. Who with me now? 